Thessalonians for the first time and we're in chapter 3. We're going to deal from verses 1 to 13 and I'll give you a brief overview of chapters 1 and 2 again just to refresh uh, and bring us into line and in what's going on here in chapter 3. The series is titled Living in Hope, Exploring 1 and 2 Thessalonians. We'll start Verse 1, therefore when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labour would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith, for now we really live if you stand firm in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly and that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. What do you do when you've led someone to the Lord and you've been taken away from their presence and they're going through and you and they are going through hard times? This chapter reminds us of the importance of follow-up. There is a great danger of seeking to bring people to the Lord. I've, I've seen some folk who as evangelists you know, more or less count scalps or notches in their belt like a gunfighter. <laughs> but are they helping to follow through? I remember one of the uh, uh, chaps that I, I knew in Queensland who had, was in a street evangelist and 
He was telling me how he had got called up to North Queensland, I think it was Early Beach, uh, to help uh, a friend who was an evangelist. And he went up to help him. And when he got there, immediately the other guy said, now you're here, I can go. <laughs> he wasn't very impressed because he thought he was going to help not to be dumped with the whole, the whole thing. It's very important that we continue to work and encourage and nurture folk. Now, so far in 1 Thessalonians, uh, in chapter 1, Paul, Sylvanus and, Sylvanus and Timothy, or Silas, Sylvanus or Silas, the shorter form, and Timothy brought the gospel to the Thessalonians who had received it, and we read that it was in word, in power, and the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And they became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord. They received the gospel in tribulation, yet with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And the gospel from them sounded forth to Macedonia and Achaia, and they turned from idolatry to the living God. Then... In chapter 2, in answer to the accusations leveled against the apostle by the enemies of the gospel, Paul reviewed his ministry among the Thessalonians as being like that of a nursing mother and an encouraging father. Having then... De Oops, we've gone one too far quick. Uh, having, uh, having then declared their thankfulness for the wonderful way the Thessalonians had responded to the gospel as it was in truth the effectual word of God, he addressed their common experience of suffering. Verses 14 to 16 speak of the fact of suffering because of one's faith in Christ, while verses 17 to 18 of chapter 2 continue the thought of suffering, but address it from the standpoint of the cause, the fight or battle with Satan. Following that, in verses 19 to 20, he addresses the subject of suffering from the standpoint of our hope or that which motivated them to endure, faith in our future hope and rewards. Now, even though he has silenced the false insinuations of his opponents regarding a lack of concern, in chapter 3, the apostle not only continues to show their deep love, and concern, but seeks to dull the pain of their separation from this, body, from this body of believers. Though Paul is a missionary evangelist, the people who have come to faith in Christ matter to him, even when he can't be present with them. Now we're going to look at it in three parts. And the first is verses 1 to 5, he's concerned. In verses 6 to 10, he's comforted. And then in verses 11 to 13, we find him interceding. Couldn't get another C there quite, unless I put seeding. But there we go. I'm not, I've never been a, an alliterative preacher in that way. Okay, verses 1 to 5. Having been driven from... Oh, sorry. Yep, concern. Having been driven from Thessalonica by paid rioters, Paul went on to Berea, where he was better received by the Jews in the synagogue there. But the troublemaking Jews from Thessalonica came there also, and the Berean believers sent Paul to Athens. 
Paul commands that they send Silas and Timothy to join him. Then as one study Bible notes, it's not clear whether Silas, as instructed, came to Athens with Timothy. However, when Timothy later returned from Thessalonica to Paul, who was now at Corinth, Silas came with him. Here, Paul moves from his absence from the Thessalonians to the sending of Timothy because of the persecution. So in verses 1 to 3, Timothy is sent. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, in this rather unique definition, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ. Usually it's fellow worker with the missionaries, but here he takes particular emphasis on Timothy as being God's fellow worker. You see, Paul's heartfelt concern for the Thessalonian believers reached a point of deep emotional distress. While in, while in Athens, he grappled with the knowledge that he had left behind new converts who were facing intense opposition. The arrival of Silas and Timothy brought some relief, but Paul remained troubled. His longing to revisit the Thessalonians and check on their well-being was overwhelming. However, circumstances prevented him from going himself. He said in chapter 2, verse 18, that he had been uh, blocked by Satan, as it were. And we're not told exactly how or why. So he entrusted this task to Timothy while he returned to Corinth. The decision made by the ministry team, missionary team was not begrudging, exemplified self-sacrifice as Paul remained in Athens. And you see, it, that's Athens today, but even then it was a big, big city and a hostile city to the gospel as well. And he remains there alone. His actions revealed not only his deep affection for the Thessalonians, but also his willingness to endure inconvenience for the sake of others. Additionally, Paul's close relationship with Timothy played a significant part. Their shared history and aligned perspectives on ministry made their partnership invaluable, emphasizing the importance of such connections in the work they were undertaking. Vernon McGee notes this, love is not affection or just a nice, comfortable, warm feeling around your heart. Love seeks the welfare of another. That is the way love is expressed for anyone. If you love someone, you seek his or her welfare and you would jeopardize your own life for the person whom you love. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, and if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now the ESV study Bible points out that Paul seems to be highlighting Timothy's credentials to offset any negative sentiment on the part of the Thessalonians at Paul sending his junior associate to them instead of coming himself. Because Timothy was young and lacked the maturity of Paul, he sends a special word of commendation for him as a brother in Christ, and more importantly, as a minister of God and a fellow laborer in the gospel. He shows his strong confidence in Timothy by sending him not only to the Thessalonians, but later to the Corinthians and to the Philippians. 
He was really Paul's follow-through worker where Paul couldn't go. But in Philippians 2, 19 to 22, you get the sense of this, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests. What a sad statement. And yet it could be very true in the contemporary church today as well. Not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. And he sent to strengthen and encourage them, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. The presence of Timothy was meant to strengthen the church in their faith as well as to encourage the people to keep from being unsettled in times of trials. The word used here, the Greek word used here, sterizo, means to be resolved in belief or attitude. It's used of shoring up a building to make it as solid as granite. And the basic idea is that of stabilizing something by providing a support or buttress so that it will not collapse. You look at a building that's in danger of falling down, you put, you put supports in place to hold it up and strengthen the, the, the things that are weak and are lacking so that it will not collapse. And the word implies stability or fixedness. So Paul sent Timothy to help the Thessalonians remain committed to the faith amid their sufferings. I like this quote that Tony Evans gives. We live in a high-tech world, but even the best technology is no replacement for relationship. We can be high-tech, but we need to be high-touch to grow spiritually. We in the church need real intimacy and that only comes through authentic touch. The second aspect of the goal is not only that he encourage and strengthen them, but to make sure that no one was deceived in verse 3, so that no one would be deceived by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this that they wouldn't be disturbed or deceived or shaken by these afflictions. One of the older commentators, uh, Trapp, said this, it came from the idea of a dog wagging its tail. He quotes, flattered as a dog flatters by moving his tail. In other words, you know, you see a dog and he shakes his, wags his tail and you say, it's okay, he's all right. If the tail doesn't move and the bristles come up and the stare, he starts to stare at you, you're in trouble. But if a dog's feigning friendliness and then turns on you, he's, he's caught you unawares. And this is the picture that he's giving, that you not be deceived by something that promises... Um, yeah, his quote here is that by flattering you with the promise of more ease by a contrary course will but do as a dirty dog defile you with fawning. Dogs obviously weren't in the place that they are considered today. Charles Ryrie said that they are not seduced away from the faith by the heathen or the, the, the pagans or unbelievers who were urging them to reject their faith. 
And David Guzik notes, without a good understanding of the faith concerning the place of suffering in the life of the believer, we're in great danger of being shaken in our faith. You know, there's a, there's a temptation to say, come to Jesus and your life will be, will, will be great thereafter. Well, come to Jesus and you're going to experience suffering and affliction and difficulties along the way. It's not for this world that our hope lies. Yes, there are blessings in this world and in this time, but there will be suffering. And Paul reminds, for you, he says, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. Paul reminds the new believers that persecution is not a sign of God's wrath. There's a tendency to think, if I'm being blessed, if things are happening well, God's pleased with me. If things are happening bad, perhaps he's angry at me. And, and that's not the case. Faith and suffering are both part of the Christian life. And since the Messiah, the prophets and the apostles all suffered persecution, the Thessalonians should not be discouraged by their experience. He says similar to the Philippians again in Philippians 1, 29 to 30. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now heard to be me. You know, we sang before, I live for your glory. <laughs> well, if the glorified one was caused to suffer for our sakes, what do you expect to live for his sake? Suffering is the norm for believers in a fallen world. So they are to expect suffering, verses 4 and 5. Jesus himself spoke of how believers would be persecuted, and Paul, having previously been a persecutor of the church, well understood both sides of this reality, and he fully expects hostility against the gospel. And so he says in verse 4, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer this affliction, and so it came to pass, as you know. That he'd already told them about suffering. He says, I kept telling you, it's in the imperfect tense, means repeated warnings, repeated action in past time. But he was still concerned that this persecution might disturb their faith. One commentator, Hebert, said this, there's an important principle to note for all those who would evangelize and then follow up or disciple. To leave converts unwarned of the possible adverse personal consequences of their acceptance of the gospel is to do them a serious injustice. Yes, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but that plan will always include suffering for the gospel. We must forewarn disciples so they are forearmed. We see in Acts, in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 22, after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But he was also checking. He says, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, or I also uh, sent to find out about your faith. 
for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labour would be in vain. Timothy approached the Thessalonians to encourage them, but he was also to report on their condition. Paul likely considered the Thessalonians to be especially vulnerable to temptation because they had converted to faith in Christ only recently. The New Testament frequently describes Satan's attempts to take advantage of people who are either young in faith or in a weakened state. If Satan had succeeded in getting the Thessalonians to abandon their faith, Paul's missionary work would have been a failure. I remember hearing many years ago, in fact, we had a, a young lad in, in high school who was showing some sort of responsive interest in, in, in the gospel, and then the next thing we heard, he'd become a Mormon. And that was one of the strategies that the Mormons were using to get eager young Christians, and then said, but you haven't quite got the full picture. And, uh, and, and to take them away in that sense. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 5.8. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If you came to churches looking for a comfortable Christianity, you came to the wrong place. And if you have a comfortable Christianity, there's something seriously wrong. Not to say that we will all suffer. We, we've been blessed in the West, and in our blessing, there's a danger of complacence and apathy. In, in the, the places where the, the, the church is persecuted in the world, it's costly to stand firm in the faith. And their faith becomes vital and real as a focus, or else they did fall away. Um, something we need to remember. But Paul is comforted in verses 6 to 10. He's comforted and encouraged when Timothy returns with good news. We see the report in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. The Thessalonians' faith and love were strong. They still had a favourable view of Paul and his companions, and they too longed to see them. Now, he says, notice he says this, good news. What do we use that phrase good news for? The gospel. It's exactly the same word in the Greek as where it's used for the gospel, euangelizo. Uh, and the good news, of course, relates to the fact that they were still walking in the gospel. It's the only use in the New Testament where it's not referring to the gospel of Christ. As Bob Utley says, Timothy's message about the faithful condition of this church was gospel good news to Paul. Three things gave him joy, you notice, he says, your faith, which is a right attitude toward God, your love, a right attitude toward others, and you long to see us, a right attitude towards Paul and the missionary team. And we see the results. He says, for this reason, brethren, in all our distress and affliction, we were comforted about you through your faith. For now we really live if you stand firm in the faith. 
And I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon written in the 1800s. And Charles Spurgeon, mightily used to the Lord as a preacher, uh, but also bedeviled uh, frequently with the affliction of, of, uh, of depression as he struggled with things. And he says, Never is the servant of God so full of delight as when he sees that the Holy Spirit is visiting his hearers, making them to know the Lord and confirming them in that heavenly knowledge. On the other hand, if God does not bless the work of his, word of his servants, it is like death to them. To be preaching and to have no blessing makes them heavy of heart. And from the era that he says, the chariot wheels are taken off and they drag heavily along. They seem to have no power or liberty, nor liberty. And he talks about them standing firm. If you stand firm in the Lord. This is Paul's favorite expression for being staying faithful to God and his gospel message. Despite much suffering and persecution, these young believers stood firm in their faith. And when we suffer in such a way that our lives honor God, others are encouraged and inspired. You read missionary stories of those who've been through great difficulties and suffering to, for the glory of the Lord, it lifts your soul. It, it encourages you to stand strong. And Paul's been encouraged as he's heard the good news about how they're going. In verses 9 to 10, we see him rejoicing and praying. In verse 9, For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy we, with which we rejoice before our God on your behalf? It's a rhetorical question. He's not expecting a direct answer. It is simply that words simply cannot adequately express to God the thanks, which filled Paul's heart. His joy was overflowing every time he remembered these saints before God because of what God had done. Paul Apple says this, we lose sight of how important a thankful heart is to God. In 1 Thessalonians 5.18, we read, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You, you want to know God's will for your life? Well, then give thanks. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Do you have a thankful spirit for what he is doing in your life and amidst his, his followers? If we don't, by the way, and what, 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 what do we get if we don't have a thankful heart? We get a grumbling heart. A bit like when you haven't eaten and your stomach starts to grumble <laughs> and tells you, oh, it's time you... Well, once you start grumbling, it's time to take a good check of yourself because he says his will for you is that in everything you give thanks. And if I can't give thanks, then the problem lies with me, not with God. In Psalm 116, verses 12 to 13, we read, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And you know, that's what we're seeking to do in the communion. We're to take hold of those elements and giving thanks to him for what he's done for us. And then in verse 10, Paul goes on, As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. 
Paul wanted to see them face to face. He, he wanted the hug, the touch. Sorry, I'm not the real huggy person, but <laughs> some of you that are, I give in anyway. But he wanted to touch, and, and he, he wanted it enough to pray night and day. Not just praying at two set times, once in the, once in the morning and once at night, but frequent prayer, just as he had worked night and day. And you notice that how it was that he prayed earnestly that God would make a way for him to see them. As Richard Mayhew says, the word Paul used for prayer, dear am I, indicates a begging-like passion for God to supply an urgent need. He's just longing for God to fulfill that, that, that answer to prayer. And you know what it's about? He wants to be filling in what's lacking in their faith. He's not suggesting that their faith was defective, but rather that there was more for them to know, to apply, to see, lived out. The missionaries had been unable to complete their usual instruction in the fundamentals of the faith. Some elements and teachings were lacking, especially concerning Jesus' resurrection and, and, and second coming, as we'll find in chapters 4 and 5, and in uh, Second Thessalonians as well. So that brings him to further interceding. Verses 11 to 13 form a transitional prayer linking the previous section of chapters 2 through to chapter 3, verse 10 to the second half of the letter in chapters 4 to 5. Verse 11 points back to what Paul has covered, whereas verses 12 to 13 look forward to what he will address. First we see in verse 11 his desire. Now may God, our, our God and Father himself, and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Paul knew that Satan had hindered his return. And David Silversides notes this reflection on that. We are not in charge of our circumstances. We need to recognize that God sets the limits of what we can do in his providence. We spend too much time fretting over what is not in our power to do, we need to learn to entrust to difficult situations to God. Here's Paul saying, may the, the Lord bring it about that he can direct our way to you, that he would direct our way to you. His desire is for growth. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we do for you. This is not a loveless church but they still had room to grow in love because love is an essential mark of the Christian faith. In fact, love is to grow and overflow. We need to keep on growing in love, not to be content with how far we've come, but to, to, to learn to love one another in such ways that it becomes evident to others around, even to unbelievers. Jesus said in John 13, 35, you know, it's to increase and abound in love. In John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You see, agape love is so different to what the world knows about love that it stands out. And if the world is not seeing that in a body called the church, 
then it needs to grow. <laughs> it needs to be stimulated to grow more and more abundantly, overflowing, so that the world begins to see that these people are different. Because these people have been shaped by Christ. Donald Burdick says, Agape is love that is initiated by the lover because he wills to love, not because of the value or lovableness of the person loved. Agape is self-giving and is not interested in what it can gain but in what it can give. It is bent on satisfying, not bent on satisfying the lover but on helping the one loved whatever the cost. It is active and it is not mere sentiment cherished in the heart, nor is it mere words, however eloquent. It does involve feeling and may express itself in words, but it is primarily an attitude toward another that moves the will to act in helping to meet the need of the one loved. We need to be growing and overflowing in love. Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians 1, 9 to 11, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And you see that leads us into the final thought in verse 13. It is to be holy and ready, ready for the Lord's coming, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness. Are you there yet? Is there still some work to be done? Some refining? Some stripping? some changing of heart and attitude and mind. Paul desires to see them standing fast in holiness when the Lord returns to examine them. There is a connection between love and holiness. Perfecting love is to perfect holiness. Why is that? Because God is love and God is holy. The two things go hand in glove, true love. Certainly agape love is described there. Jesus said in Matthew 23, just before uh, his crucifixion, as he came into Jerusalem and he saw the white tombs, and you can still see them there today, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. God's will is that our lives be characterized in every area by Christ-likeness, both in attitudes and actions. In attitudes and actions. How's your love going? The Apostle Paul says to the Ephesians in uh, one, chapter 1, verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
In 1 Thessalonians 5.23, he utters this prayer, Now may the God of peace and may sanctify you entirely, perfect holiness, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And writing to the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us love ourselves from all... Uh, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That means perfecting love. Tony Evans says, living in light of Jesus' second coming means living in holiness. Paul Apple asks the question, how do you evaluate your spiritual growth lately? Have you been growing in the right areas? How have you been actively encouraging others to grow? And it gives five key parameters to our spiritual progress that we should be monitoring. Are we making healthy progress in joy and thanksgiving? In prayer? In faith? in fellowship and love and in holiness and hope. Well, Jude concludes with this prayer. You know it well. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. And all the people said, and they mean it. Hear it again? Amen. Are you, like Paul, following up with others, helping them to grow in grace, faith, love, and holiness, while continuing to grow yourself. That's really what Paul's prayers here are about. And what the will of God is for, is that we may be presented blameless and holy before the Lord in his coming. We know that he will burn away wood, hay and stubble. But how much more important if we are growing in these central things especially in love, because it's love that indicates the reality of what's going on. We can fake the other things. We can put the external on and be like the whitewashed sepulchres. But it's from the heart that he wants to transform us from glory to glory into the very image of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. Let's just bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for Paul's heart. And we can understand why you made him a missionary to the Gentiles, an apostle to the Gentiles. And you told him that he would have to suffer just as he had made the early church suffer because he knew the reality. He knew with a passion what it meant to know and to stand firm and to stay true to the living God. 
And Father, we pray that you would help us to continue growing. May our lives be an encouragement to others as we grow in love and faith and holiness. Not as a looking down upon others or writing off of others, but actually as a beacon of hope, as, as the light of the love of your gospel, touching lives because you have touched ours. And so we pray, help us to be faithful, help us to continue to, to, to invest in others, to strengthen and encourage them, to be patient with them as you have been patient with us. Help us to nurture and not place heavy burdens ahead of those that are yet young in faith to strengthen and encourage and be an example and, and be ever-growing ourselves to the last breath that you give us.